Before we get started, I want to share a recent review we received from Brashtag. She wrote, I look forward to this podcast every week. I feel like I'm having coffee with friends who get it. I always leave encouraged and empowered. So I want to encourage and empower you to leave a review for the Adoption Connection podcast. This is how people are able to find it. The more positive reviews we have when people search adoption, it will start showing up to more and more adoptive moms and we can reach more people who also need friends who understand. Yeah, I love that. I feel like I'm having coffee with friends who get it. We wish we were having coffee with you too, friends. If you want to leave a review, iTunes is really the best place to do that. So in your app, if you go to search at the bottom and type in adoption, our podcast will come up. Scroll all the way to the bottom. You'll see ratings and reviews. And there is a place on the left that says write a review. So we would love if you took a minute to do that. We love hearing from you, one. And then two, are really just looking to find the mom out there who feels like she's all alone and doesn't have any hope or help. And these reviews, like Lisa said, really help us pop up more in like search engines and things like that. So thanks so much for your help, guys. Welcome to the Adoption Connection podcast, where we share resources by and for adoptive and foster moms. I'm Lisa Qualls. And this is Melissa Corkum. Don't worry, we get it and we're here for you. Hey, Melissa, how are you? Hey, Lisa, how are you doing? It is kind of a weird morning for you. It is a weird morning for me, yes. My kids got out of school yesterday and they had some friends stay the night because, you know, it's fun and it's exciting to have the first day of summer break. And all of a sudden I realized we record our podcast and I record in my kitchen, sitting at my island, you know, on a stool. And that cannot happen this morning. So I have kind of set up a makeshift situation in my bedroom where I'm sitting on the floor with my computer and microphone on top of my laundry hamper. Beautiful. Well, when this comes out, I think this will finally be our kid's last day of school. He ends a half day on a Tuesday, which I just think is kind of ridiculous. I'm like, just end on Friday. But you know, there's rules about how many days you have to be in school and mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. But we had so much snow this year and we have a mandated X number of days in school. I think it's like 180 or something. So they're still in school. It's crazy. Yeah. Well, you have um, more opportunity to be prepared because apparently I didn't take my own advice quite enough. There are some things I prepared for, but this, I don't know how I missed this until all of a sudden, like I literally had to handwrite with a Sharpie recording podcast. Shh, do not disturb and hang out my bedroom door. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't even tell them last night. So yes, but here we are. And I'm actually really excited about today's episode. Well, and it's all about expectations. So, you know, it's not exactly about summer expectations, but it all kind of flows together. And we have a fantastic guest today who has been at this a super long time, even longer than you have, Lisa. And so, yeah, why don't you tell us a little bit about Deb? Well, Deb Jones is a friend of mine who I have great respect for. She lives in Texas with her husband. She has two kids. She has a master's of education from Texas Women's University. She is the author of God, Are You Nice or Mean? Trusting God After the Orphanage. You know, for years, Deb and her husband, Alan, felt overwhelmed and ill-equipped to manage the maladaptive and disruptive behaviors of their internationally adopted son, Dane. 
through a treasured relationship with her mentor, the late Dr. Karen Purvis, and an ongoing partnership with researchers at the Karen Purvis Institute of Child Development at TCU, Deb and her family have overcome tremendous obstacles. As a mentor of the TCU Institute, Deb has taught trust-based relational intervention and assisted professionals going through their practitioner training. She is the founder and owner of Parent Intervention and Training. She offers presentations, workshops, and keynote addresses to help struggling parents and professionals who work with children who have experienced early harm. So as you can see, she does a lot. She does. And her adopted son, Dane, is in his late 20s now. And so she's going to talk to us a little bit just about expectations. We talked a lot about this in the past two weeks where we were talking about things that we could do to prepare for our fostering and adoption journey. And we kind of talked about how expectations was a theme to go through the whole thing. And so it warranted an entire podcast interview because Deb has gotten so good at understanding how to shift her expectations to best support Dane. So Here's your interview with Deb. Welcome to the Adoption Connection Podcast, Deb. I'm so happy to be talking with you today. Thank you, Lisa. It's such an honor to be here. I really appreciate you having me on the Adoption Connection. Well, thank you. Why don't we start? You know, some people listening know you and know your work, and some people don't. So why don't you just Tell us briefly sort of how you've come to the work that you're doing and who you are and those kinds of things. Okay. Uh, Well, I'm sort of Deb, Debbie, Deborah, depends on who you're talking to. And uh, I am an adoptive parent and we, our adoption journey started a little different than most uh, because it was nearly 28 years ago. And at that time there weren't large adoption ministries. Uh, We didn't even have the internet, which is really crazy to think about. But I was an MS patient, had been advised not to have another pregnancy when my daughter was one, and I'd had a severe um, initial exacerbation. And so we had friends that went to Romania to adopt. And we laugh now. I kind of say I'm a professed, self-professed idiot because even though I had a master's in special ed, we had no idea what we were up against as far as developmental delays. We knew nothing about attachment or trauma or fetal alcohol. And so we thought the stress-free route was to go international adoption to save the stress on the MS. So we laugh about that in retrospect, but we did go to Romania and adopted a son who was not quite one when we brought him home. And he made huge gains initially, but by twos, it was terrible twos and uh, terrible twos didn't go away. By threes, I knew we were in trouble as a special educator. I knew we had some serious labels coming our way. And by four, we were in the psychology, psychiatry, counseling, OT, you name it, route of looking for answers and had some extremely difficult years, Uh, very aggressive behaviors from a very young age, very verbally threatening super hyperactive, a lot of sensory impairment, although I did not have, you would think with a special ed degree, I would have known about sensory integration, but I'm an old lady. And in the 80s, they didn't teach that in college. So uh, my master's was in 87. And we really got very little information on sensory integration at that point. And so we were just searching for answers constantly. My husband and I are both school teachers. We're spending every dime known to man trying to find answers for our son. And at about age 10, we found Karen Purvis doing one of her first, it was actually her second, Hope Connection camp. Uh, 
and she at that time was working on her master's degree. She was not Dr. Karen at that time. She was Miss Karen, or we often referred to her as Saint Karen because she helped us so much. And so he was part of her earliest research. Those camps initially were just for internationally adopted children, primarily from Russia, Romania, Lithuania, countries in Eastern Europe where the kids were really struggling in their adoption journeys. And so we did a very intensive home program with her at a point in our journey where we had just run out of places to turn and the violence was increasing. Dane was 11. Our daughter was falling apart. We were falling apart. We were in debt. The marriage was stressed and we were seeking uh, placement outside the home for Dane, which was a very grievous part of our story. Uh, no judgment at all for families that have made that decision. I certainly know that there are cases where because of safety and younger children in the home, that has to take place. But Karen, in her wisdom, said, let's try something else. And what about intervention at home? And try to really sort of wipe the slate clean and start over. And so a team of professionals came. We did a full neuropsych evaluation at that point. We were aware by that point that he did have fetal alcohol syndrome. We'd gotten that diagnosis early, but we had not gotten any answers about what to do about it. And of course, he had um, a disorganized attachment style. He was sensory impaired. He had cognitive delays. And so it was just a very, very, very difficult um, time in our lives. And she came in, we did a really intensive start over kind of program with this team helping us. And we made huge gains. We were able to keep him at home. He didn't leave. And he's just made continual steady gains with regressions, I will say to, to this point. He's now 28. He'll be 29 this summer. And he works at a grocery store as a courtesy clerk and loves to tell people how it's uh, his job to bless his customers and take care of them and make sure they have a good day and help them. And he lives in his own apartment and has since he was 19. So Dane reached a level of independence that we were just surprised. He was able to live in his own apartment, but with a lot of scaffolding support. We literally hold him up in a lot of ways. He doesn't drive and we help with his finances and help him manage his money, but he's independent with support and takes care of his loyal dog, Hershey, who he calls his son. And uh, he's just a cutie and has made friends of his own, as well as has some friends of ours that have continued to stay in touch with him. And Building friendships is difficult for him, but um, he's loyal to them when he does build them. And so we're super proud of the independence and stability that he has gained on this journey. And we just feel a huge commitment to help parents basically learn from the knots on our head. We made a lot of parenting mistakes. We always say we changed as much, if not more, as Dane did on this very tough, tough parenting journey. And it's still tough. There's still unanswered questions, but we want to help parents on their journey as much as we can. Well, I love that. I know that story is going to encourage a lot of listeners who have kids that with a lot of challenges and they're thinking, oh my goodness, what if they never grow up? What if it never gets better? What are we going to do? And, you know, we as parents can get really you filled with fear, I think, of the future. And so when we hear stories like this, it is encouraging. And, you know, not all of our listeners are people of faith, but for those of us who are people of faith, it's like, you know, God has worked in your family 
brought all of you to really a beautiful place, which has then opened up all this opportunity for you to serve other families. Who knew, right? Who knew 28 no, years ago? Yeah. I was just getting too special ed. I mean, none of this was in the plan for, from my perspective. Uh, right. It is, um, it's an opportunity we cherish. We consider it very sacred work um, because we know what it's like to be desperate. And we did a lot of parenting out of fear. And so we, we hope to calm those fears. And even though we can say it's still tough, we can help you in the tough. We can help you stay connected. We're never here to say we fix kids or fix broken uh, family systems, but we help you get healthier. We help you see things maybe that you have not seen in the past and, and try to encourage parents that with a brain-based approach, we really can make a huge difference with our kiddos. And I, I would say for a fetal alcohol adult, when, one day I had an aha moment of why we couldn't find friends for Dane that had fetal alcohol. It's because not many of them are independent, living in an apartment, holding down a job. That's very rare on that journey because of the poor cause-effect thinking. So a lot of a lot of the young adults with fetal alcohol end up in addiction themselves. Um, a lot of suicidal, you know, ideologies and problems and actual occurrences. A lot of mental health issues. A lot of homelessness a lot of jail time. And so we are just so grateful that we have been able to, you know, knock on wood, which might be my head. We've been able to avoid all of that. And he's, he's stable within his instability, if that makes sense, you know, well, within his limitations, you know, dysregulated, but he, we know what to do about that now and just have never given up on him. And he hasn't given up on us. He knows we're there for him. We were wondering, you know, what is one of the things that you see in families that's really common to parents who are parenting these children with so many unique needs that that you could help them with today? There are a lot of areas we could could venture out on, but one of the things that we see consistently, and I know you're supposed to never say every single time, but it's pretty close to every single time when we work with families, either, you know, just in a phone consult or in their home, we see parents setting the bar of expectation too high. And it, so we want to talk about setting that bar of expectation and how much that bar of expectation changes at any point in time. I was going to say, do you mean at any point in time, meaning... Any day, any multiple times a day and different types of things. What do you mean by that? Yes, uh, that bar of expectation can change within a minute. I mean, because your child might be able to be functioning at an eight-year-old level at one point in time. However, if he gets overwhelmed or there's a fear triggered and he loses access to that higher level thinking we call the upstairs brain, he may be functioning more like a two-year-old. And so your bar of expectation that was for an eight-year-old needs to quickly change to a two-year-old. And if we aren't attuned as parents to know that and be able to calm that two-year-old level of expectation and that child in that state, we will make parenting mistakes. We'll put more pressure on them and they'll make more mistakes and the fears increase and the behaviors increase. Can you tell us a story about sort of how you learned about this with Dane? Yes, I have a very vivid one, actually, that I like to tell often. And uh, it's kind of a funny story in my relationship with Karen Purvis, who we just adore as a mentor and friend, and she helped us so much on our journey. But we, when she was working intensely with our family in our home, she said to me, Debbie, you know, you have a child 
who has the attachment needs of an infant. He has the emotional regulation of a toddler. He's cognitively about a five or six year old because of his brain injury from fetal alcohol. He's in an 11 year old body, but because of something called precocious puberty, which means abandoned children often hit puberty early, he's got the hormones of a 19 year old. And I was looking at her like five ages in one body. Exactly how am I supposed to parent that package? And so she and I referred back to that often that, you know, we don't ever want to shame him. He's 11. We have to treat him like he's 11 and not embarrass him as parents. But he's got the emotional regulation of a two-year-old. And yet we needed to start over and do infancy, newborn, look into his eyes, safe, nurturing touch, and all of those things he missed here when he spent those months in that orphanage and was alone and starving. He weighed like nearly 12 pounds at a year old. So we know he was extremely neglected and starving. And so meeting all those needs at one time was like, who's going to do this? <laughs> you know. And So thankfully I had Karen to help me, you know, navigate those waters and begin to look at what, a, what is the expectation here? What am I aiming for? And of course, we know the brain develops from the bottom up. So we chose to start with infancy. You know, we really did sort of wipe the slate clean. I took a leave of absence from my teaching job and I filed for Family Medical Leave Act. And we just really started over with infancy forward for about four months. I mean, we really did an intensive wipe the slate clean, start over. Let's give these needs that he missed in infancy understand he's regulating like a two-year-old, you know, and talk to him on in language that's about a five or six-year-old level, you know, so we, we really did map out a program. The 19-year-old hormones, I maybe still hadn't figured that out. He's 28. <laughs> so <laughs> there, Karen needs to come back and tell me what to do about sex ed and brain damage. I'm not sure <laughs> that's the level we're at right now. <laughs> doesn't have a girlfriend at this time, so we're safe. <laughs> yeah. So tell us, I mean, I'm listening to this, all these different stages of development present at one time in your son. And while you're talking, I'm thinking, oh my goodness. And I'm thinking, of course, about my own kids and thinking, so how do you do this? So tell us kind of more in a practical sense, what did this program look like? Get kind of a big overview. Okay. So the overview would be, we made it very concrete, literal, because of his processing. And so we did goal posters and we, we made posters of words you can say, words, words you can't say. And it was about a five or six year old developmental level because that's where he was in his higher cortex thinking. You know, he could understand at about a five or six year old level. When he melted down and raged, which he did, then we went, oops, we're a two year old, you know, so we're going to calm him. We're not going to consequence this. We're not going to heavily punish this. We're going to get through this in the same way we would tame a meltdown in a very young child that we knew did not have the brain development for, for self-regulation. And so we worked at that developmental level. Um, after a meltdown, we would go back and hold him just like you would an infant. Look into his eyes. Talk about what happened. You know, why was it, you know, such a hard thing when mommy told you to brush your teeth, you know, what, what scared you about that? What did that feel like? Well, I just didn't want to, I don't like, you know, you being in control you know, or whatever, you know, we would talk about those control things and, but we would nurture him and make it safe and 
talk about it's okay to be angry, but we use words when we're angry. And we would do the redos that we learn about through Karen Purvis's work and lots of practice and role play of those younger developmental things that he somehow missed. And sometimes it would be two hours before I'd get that kid dressed in the morning. I mean, it was a very time intensive. When, when I say start over with infancy when, with an 11-year-old, they don't just crawl in your lap and say, okay, let's do baby steps now. You know, it, he fought us. We had huge control battles, but we cognitively as parents knew this isn't about control. This is about fear. You know, control is a fear-based response. And so, so true. we had to developmentally understand this is where he is. And this is where he is at this moment in time. Right now he's melting down over not getting to wear the Hulk shirt to school or whatever it was, you know, he's, it's picture day. He's got to wear the, these choices of shirts. It could be over any minor thing, which I'm sure parents can all relate to that. It's like, how can just getting your shoes and getting in the car be such an issue? Well, it can be for them with their sensory needs and their lack of problem solving and their lack of organization and understanding of time. There's so many things that they may not process the way we would expect them to for their chronological age. So we practiced and practiced and practiced. And because of the fetal alcohol, it took many, many repetitions for him to learn things that, you know, a, a typical neuro, neurotypical 11 year old would have grasped in much fewer repetitions. So you know, you mentioned doing reduce, and I know that's something we're very familiar with, but not all of my listeners will necessarily know what we're talking about. Can you tell a story or give an example of what a redo is? Because it is a powerful teaching tool, and it's powerful for the brain. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes. So we do reduce with our kids to help build a new neural connection in the brain. So if you think of this as highways on a map and little bitty farm roads on a map, our kiddos have an overdeveloped downstairs or lower part of their brain, which is primitive. It quickly goes to fight, flight, freeze responses. That part of the brain, if they experience trauma, got a lot of exercise, a lot of working, a lot of building highways. If you're picturing this map, if you guys know what a map is. Your listeners are probably young. They have GPS, but in the old <laughs> you should fold out maps and actually look at pictures of roads. And we have like eight lane highways in our kiddos of these overdeveloped amygdala responses that drive them to fight, flight, or freeze. And he might have an itty bitty little narrow farm road for complying with a parent request, like brush your teeth or get your shoes on. And so we would actually do a redo to build that neural pathway. We want the correct response to be the eight lane highway. And we want to minimize those fight, flight or freeze responses that may currently be the eight lane highway. So we really want to flip those. So we would do a redo on something simple like, you know, we told you to get your shoes and he may have thrown a fit. That may have gone to a huge meltdown. It may be 45 minutes later, but once he's calm, never do we ask for a redo when they are in a dysregulated or escalated or what a parent without this terminology might just call out of control behavior. We don't ask for the redo then because they don't have access to their higher thinking, which is prefrontal cortex right behind the forehead. So we would do these kinds of redos when they're calm, when they can think. 
And I would be like, and it would make it very playful, very light. Your tone of voice is very important. We're going to just build you a new highway. And I used the highway example with the kids. You know, we're going to build that part of your brain higher and stronger and exercise it. So just think of this like aerobics for your brain. So next time I tell you to get your shoes, we won't have this 45 thing and we can get back to playing and having fun. So come on, let's try again. And sometimes I'd even reverse roles. I try to make it as non-threatening as possible. You want to be the mommy or the kid, you know, and we would even try it that way. I'm going to tell you to go get your shoes and you can say this, or you can say this, or you can pick your own, as long as it's a respectful response. You know, I would tell him exactly what to say because he really didn't know. You know, you can say, okay, mommy, or I'll get them now, or you can make up something of your own. And we would role play and act it out right then. So we did lots and lots of that during this really intensive period. To be honest, he's 28 and I kind of still do reduce. You know, well, buddy, I may not call it a redo because they don't like that. And just for parents who are working with older kids, I know sometimes some of the responses we get when people are aware of this program and have watched some of the DVDs from the Karen Purvis Institute at Texas Christian University, they may say, well, it's all little kids. So you wouldn't probably call it a redo with a 15 or 16-year-old. I certainly don't with a 28-year-old, but I might say, uh, that didn't set with me. Let's try that again with respect. You know, if something feels disrespectful or defiant or, you know, let, let's, let's see how we can do this again. And it's going to be, it's going to keep our relationship more connected. You know, when you talk to me with respect and I talk to you with respect. So we actually still do reduce. I kind of probably even do a redo with like a cashier at the grocery store. If she's ugly to me, <laughs> she just doesn't know it. <laughs> That's funny. You know, it just kind of rolls out once you've done it for so long. TBRI, trust-based relational intervention, is how we roll. You know, we don't use punishment. We see this as building the brain healthier. It's all about building the brain. Yeah, somebody asked me recently about, uh, I can't remember what it was, but it was something about attachment and TBRI. And I said, honestly, it applies to every relationship I have. You know, it's different in the way I use it with my kids, of course, but every relationship I have, when I'm in tune with things and people, I'm thinking about their responses and their words in terms of their own attachments and traumas and everything. It's so true. It's so true. Yeah, yeah. Well, I am really glad you shared about a redo in a little more detail because, you know, I... I want people to get the basics too. You know, we're, we're all, everybody's brains get very tired when we're parenting kids like this and with lots of needs and we need to hear it again and again, just like they do, you know, our brains to parent this way, we have to form new neural pathways and new highways, you know, Absolutely. absolutely, because it's a brand new way of thinking for a lot of people. Yes. It's a huge, we call it a huge paradigm shift for most parents. Mm-hmm. Most all of us come from a background where a behavior that is consequenced, we believe will decrease a behavior that is rewarded will increase. Well, that's really not how the brain works. You know, when we're trying to correct something, when a person is in a survival state, of fighting for their life, which they really are. And really probably, you know, I I jokingly said the lady at the grocery store, but it really is true. If somebody is being snippy or defensive or angry, they're probably not fully thinking correctly. They've been triggered in some way. And so even in any adult relationship, if we can go a little playful or a little humorous or just take a deep breath or not press that person and let them calm they can probably pull out of it and think clearly again. And so I would say all of us probably 
have a two-year-old in us that can <laughs> come out. You know, I certainly know mine uh, pops up at times when I'm overwhelmed or mostly when I'm fatigued because I've done really poor self-care. And, you know, those will be the times that I'm more irritable or more likely to raise my voice or snap or give a command instead of, you know, respectfully give choices to my kiddos or whatever. So mm-hmm. I still, in terms of scripts, you know, we talk about scripts in TBRI, yes. little simple phrases that communicate something very quickly and succinctly. And I, the two scripts I probably, I still use, try that again with respect. I use it every day almost. Yes. And as my kids have gotten older, I've started using, so are you asking or telling? I use that more now. When they were little, I didn't really use that. But now that I have pretty much all preteens and teens, yes. I, I use that. And I don't, say it in a dismissive way, like, hey, who do you think you are? Right. Are you asking me for something or are you telling me? And usually they can turn around and say, oh, well, actually I'm asking. And they'll, and then they redo it. Right. Yeah. Because they know that that's how we roll. (laughs) It is. It is. That makes so much difference. So Deb, tell me a little bit about how we can help parents, parents who are fatigued and overwhelmed. How do we help them as they are learning all these new things. Yes. Well, I think any of us that are supporting, whether it's just a a friend in the adoption community or a friend at church, or you're working with them as a professional, we must have empathy and support for these families. This is not a journey any of us need to be doing in isolation. And I know too many times I felt alone on this journey and that no one understood and traditional parenting advice would always fail when people would try to tell you how to raise your children that were, you know, experiencing trauma or drugs in utero or alcohol or the things that we've experienced. And so lots of empathy and support. And I think helping parents build a team and we even sometimes have to teach them how to do that. You know, um, I think we have to teach people how we can be treated. You know what I mean? That this is the way we operate. We are reestablishing a, a developing brain way of parenting. And so to be my friend, you need to do <laughs> this, this, and this, you know, you don't need to correct my children, maybe the way you would correct yours. And this might be even to in-laws or family members, you know, so parents need a lot of support and teaching from people who get their world. And it's hard to find. We have to teach them. We have to be willing to teach them. Yes. And some practical steps just to help Parents um, set the expectations correctly. I think, number one, you have to know your child's strengths and weaknesses. And if you have a child that's showing significant um, aggression, significant developmental delays, you need a full neuropsych evaluation. You need to know, is his expressive language much higher than his receptive language, what he understands. That can be very typical of a fetal alcohol child. Even doctors and professionals often miss that. So you may have a child that's very, very chatty and they seem like they understand because they can talk so high that they really are comprehending at a much lower level. And a neuropsych evaluation can give you those kinds of things so that you know your three or four step instructions maybe just wave in the top of his hair. We need to bring that expectation down and give much simpler instructions. So knowing his strengths and weaknesses, knowing his 
cognitive level, his achievement level, his intellectual level, based on some really good neuropsych testing can be really invaluable for parents. And we see parents have this aha moment like, oh my gosh, I've been treating him like an eight-year-old and he's really like a four-year-old in receptive language. I feel mean now. And of course, we don't want any parent to feel mean. You, We all, when we know better, we do better. We've probably heard that phrase before. We didn't know. And so I made a ton of parenting mistakes because I didn't realize where his processing was. And I didn't understand these things about the brain and how to parent with the brain in mind. I think a, a second thing is we have to know our own strengths and weaknesses. I hate to tell you, but I have some hot buttons. Really? <laughs> okay, we all do. <laughs> I have a few yeah. hot buttons. You know, yep. maybe like lying might be a big one for me. So we have to know. If you go just ballistic over a lie, that's really more about you than about the child lying. Why is that a big trigger for you? Who lied to you in your childhood? Do you have a belief system that says anybody that'll lie will steal? If they'll steal, they'll kill. That kid's going to grow up, lie, steal, and kill. I mean, <laughs> if you have these kind of belief systems, then lying may be a big trigger for you, you know? So we have to look at the reality in a kid from a hard place is lying is a survival strategy. They manipulate. They lie to get out of trouble. They lie to not see the veins on your neck stick out. <laughs> so we have to know our hot buttons. What causes us to maybe overreact to a developmental issue where our child is performing much younger than their age? And I always tell parents, and I, did, I made this mistake all the time, do you go around telling your kid how old they are? They know. We, we don't have to tell them, you are eight years old. Why are you doing that? An eight-year-old should. You know, we have to get rid of that shoulda, coulda, woulda list, I think. Because our eight-year-old may not be able to meet our shoulda, coulda, woulda expectations. And then I think staying in the present. Much easier said than done, but we have to not look at the past and blame. We have to not fear the future and put expectations that are too high for where our child is right now on this date at this time whether he might be too tired, too hungry to handle what I'm giving him. Where is he right now or she? Where am I right now? How do I parent to the best of my ability in the present? Emotionally connected, right brain to right brain, instead of all of my left brain logical reasons why he should do something the way I want it done. So staying in the present is a biggie. And then I think I would... Uh, the fourth thing I would say as far as just some practical application would be to know that that bar of expectation is changing often. We have lots of developmental levels going on at one time with a child who experienced early trauma or substances in the womb or developmental lags for whatever reason, whether those be emotional or physical or cognitive language learning processing type things. So know that that bar, bar of expectation does change. And so we have to have that flexibility to change with them. We have to recognize that major developmental milestones, I will say probably 99.9% .9 of the time, you're going to see some regressions. And it can be disheartening. You can think, oh, I thought we were through with this behavior. We got, he'd come so far. And now he was in fifth grade doing great. And sixth grade, he fell apart. Well, sixth grade's a major change. We have a lot of kerplunks at age 11, 12. They may be going from elementary school to middle school. They have many more transitions, many teachers. 
the hormones are kicking in, the cute girls are looking cute, and the cute boys are looking, you know, not quite cute. No, they are. <laughs> the boys are maturing slower, but they're <laughs> changing so rapidly at that developmental age for our kids. It's scary. And they regress. And we sometimes regress too because we think, oh, this TBRI stuff doesn't work. I've done this for months and he's come this far and look at how he's acting now at age 11. Here we are again. It, this stuff does not work. It's not that this stuff does not work. It's that relationships change. I'm sure your relationship with your husband is not what it was when you were on your honeymoon. Relationships change and we all regress at times and our kiddos even more so. So major developmental phases bring regression. But the good news about a regression even is you do know what to do. We go back to what we know. My child at 28 can regress back to needing infancy needs met if he feels rejected by a cute girl. He can go back to yelling and tantruming almost like a two-year-old if he's scared of his future. And I have to be able to go with him to that place and know he needs comfort. He needs calming. He needs a secure parent who has her brain on board because we have what's called mirror neurons in our brain. And so if I freak out with him, then it's only going to escalate that behavioral situation much higher and make it last longer. Whereas if I can comfort him, if I can recognize where he is, if I can stay in that present with him, go to that developmental phase, knowing he's going to come back up. This is just a moment in time and I can go there with him. And I certainly don't stand here saying I do it right all the time. I still can regress too. And, but we have the knowledge. And like I said, we know better, we do better. So take that deep breath, calm ourselves down as parents do your self care. I have really made mistakes in this area a lot of times and tried to be superwoman, but I have to have a support team. I have to know who I call to pray for me when I need to say, daddy, it's your turn. I'm going to take a bubble bath and close this door and you're not going to see me for a while. Or do I need to get in my car and go sit at Starbucks for a while? We have to do our self-care. This is a hard journey. You are parenting above and beyond what the parent of a neurotypical developing child is doing is parenting. And so you have to give yourself a lot of grace and cut yourself some slack that what you're doing is hard work and you need support. And we talk about giving a lot of yeses to the kids to build trust. I'm giving you mamas and daddies, probably more mamas, give yourself some yeses. I'm giving you permission to say yes to yourself and stay healthy on this journey. Deb, that is so good. I, I am guessing that there are people listening who, like me, have tears in their eyes <laughs> listening to you. Just, just the grace that you're extending to us. We don't have to be perfect. We just have to press on, you know, and, and be really uh, compassionate for ourselves and our kids yeah. and our spouses. This is complex. And it's I just- very hard and very complex. Mm -hmm. I feel like you've given people um, a lot of hope. You've given us some practical ideas. I just love it. Do you want to wrap up with, do you have just a quick story you can share with us and then we'll be- One of the ways we train, it's a really fun way. We know parents are desperate. And so we took a parent training cruise. Yes, you had to pay for it, but uh, <laughs> it was great. We did training on the ship days and we just vacationed and had total respite 
away from the kiddos with our spouses or friends or whoever we went with. And so we did a lot of parent training and I have a lady who came back to me because we're planning one in 2020. And if you'd like to go, we'd love to have you late February of 2020. But a lady came to me and she said, may I please promote this with my adoption community group at my church, our, our adoption ministry. She said it made so much difference for us. We adopted from foster care. And because I had just come off of that training on your cruise ship, it was a great way to train. She said, I did everything you told us to do and our girls are doing so well. And I, I had fostered before. I wish I had had this information then, but using these techniques, using the trust-based approach and the knowledge of the brain has helped us so much. They've adjusted well and they are thriving and we are just so thankful. So I really appreciated to hearing back from her because we, we love hearing stories that it made a difference. We love it when we can work with adoptive families early on their journey or pre-adoptive and maybe they can avoid some of the mistakes we made. Oh, thank you, Deb. I just love getting to talk with you. We need to do this more often. We definitely need to do this more often. Lisa, that was a great conversation with Deb and filled with so much hope because she's so much further along in the journey and Dane is doing so well. Yes, I hope that this interview encourages a lot of parents who are, you know, experiencing their kids being teens, moving toward young adulthood, and they're panicked and thinking, what are we going to do? What is life going to be like? How can my child ever be independent? You know, and we see Dane's story. And of course, you know, Deb and Alan are very invested in his day-to-day life. And yet he's independent to, you know, as much capability as he can be. I just love that. Yeah, it was really impactful for me because I kind of in my head always think about independence as kind of this all or nothing thing, right? Oh, you're never going to go out on your own if you can't manage your money or you'll never be able to do this if you can't drive. But Dane's not doing either one of those things and he's still able to have his own apartment. And so I'm like, the wheels are turning in my head for a couple of our situations with our kids. And I'm thinking, okay, scaffolding, I know about this. We could do this. It, It looks... I know what it looks like in the day-to-day life when they're living with us, but expanding my horizons to think, you know, what could it look like in an independent living situation and kind of having some of the best of both worlds. And so I love that. Yes, me too. Me too. And Deb and Ellen, you know, offer a lot of support and help for parents. I do want to, before we go into that, I do want to remind people, not too long ago in episode 40, we interviewed Eileen Devine about parenting kids with FASDs and invisible disabilities successfully. It was a phenomenal interview, a great episode. So if you have not heard that one, I would encourage you to go back to number 40 and listen to that as a companion to this interview. Yeah, absolutely. We will definitely link to that one in the show notes as well. And like Deb mentioned, FASDs is part of his story. And so if you're looking for like the really practical day-to-day stuff, Eileen did a great job of kind of going over some of that. And there's a great uh, download at her episode as well. So like you said, Lisa, Deb and Alan offer a lot of services to parents. They offer intensive parent training in what we call trust-based parenting, this model that teaches helpful brain integration strategies for building healthier neural pathways. So you can find Deb on Facebook, um, facebook.com slash parent intervention. And again, we'll have that link to the show notes. She has also provided 
a wealth of resources for parents in a download. It's just kind of like a bibliography of all the things that you would ever want to know. A list of really helpful websites, everything from sensory to parenting websites to magazines and all types of things, a whole list of books that she recommends that have been helpful in her journey, uh, teaching DVDs, lecture DVDs. I mean, just so many things. So if you're kind of a research nut like Lisa and me are, you definitely want to grab this download. All the links for all the things that we've mentioned, how to get in touch with Deb, her download, links to past episodes that are relevant can all be found at the show notes. You can get those at theadoptionconnection.com slash 43. Before you go, we'd love to connect with you on social media. You can find us on Facebook or Instagram as The Adoption Connection. Thanks so much for listening. We love having you. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a quick review over on iTunes. It will help us reach more moms who may be feeling alone. And remember, until next week, you're a good mom doing good work and we're here for you. The music for the podcast is called New Day and was created by Lee Rosevere.